0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, we have got a terrific episode for you today. My guests are Dave Dombro and Kevin Fallon, who are the co founders of Speedland, which is a hyper performance trail running shoe company based in portland oregon now the first thing i want to say is that for anybody who is interested in design of running shoes yes but really of shoes in general or really any products i think you are going to love this episode because dave and kevin have some serious chops when it comes to product design they have worked for well most of the largest brands in the athletic shoe space and now at Speedland they are setting out to design these as I said hyper performance shoes where their very clear focus is not on hitting certain price targets but rather to try to design the ultimate shoes to the best of their abilities regardless of the cost. So in this conversation, we talk a ton about their own incredibly interesting backgrounds. We talk about product design and why they decided to go so specifically into the trail running market. And well, we're going to see whether by the end you're done listening to Dave and Kevin talk about what they're up to. If in fact, you think that their first model, the SLPDX, and it's accompanying $375 price tag actually makes sense to you. And with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Dave and Kevin. Here we go. Why well, I'm very happy to be here with Dave and Kevin. I think to get us started, Dave, let's just see if you can answer the question,
1: what is Speedland? Well, Speedland was born out of the idea of building a hyper-performance trail brand, um, but really taking a no-compromise approach. Uh, And so what that means is that we kind of maybe did the opposite of the industry in many ways and just built the best of the best at every turn in order to get to something um, in the trail space that we hadn't, uh, you know, didn't ever see.
0: Let's stay on this notion of no compromise, right? Because frankly, that sounds like something that pretty much every brand would, you know, tends to say at some point, whether it's about everything they're doing or given models or whatever. So let me push you a little further on that. What does it mean for you to say, we really set out to design products with no compromise?
1: Well, I mean, I think when you look at the industry, projects basically start um across the board in a similar way they get a a brief with which has you know what you need for the product and within that brief they also have uh what's called an fob which is kind of the price target that you have to hit uh we didn't we didn't really have that uh we never had an fob we never had a price target we just wanted to build the best um best of the best and we looked at all the performance attributes you know and we can get into this later but whether it's fit or traction or cushion. And we just wanted to optimize each one of these areas and partner with the best people um, that we knew in the industry to get to that. So that's really, when we're talking about no compromising, we're talking about really building the best of the best and not trying to hit a certain price point, just trying to get to the optimum, um, I guess, expression for that for that consumer, for that athlete.
0: Okay. And I think a lot of our conversation here today is going to then be sort of unpacking everything you've just kind of said. I think what I want to do now is go to Kevin. Kevin, when did you first meet Dave? We met
2: at Nike. We were both working in Nike basketball. Um, I had been at Nike a little longer uh, previously in the soccer footwear design group and moved into the innovation team in basketball. And Dave was designing inline product for basketball. So we met there. And uh, I think, you know, at that time at Nike, design and basketball and that culture was pretty special. And we, we got to travel and do some really interesting things there and, and learned uh, quite a bit. I think both of us were, were still in that steep part of our learning curve and footwear and we were surrounded by great people from which we could learn and develop and, um, again, the travel experiences and things. Uh, so it was a a pretty unique time. And for me, it was the first time working in innovation. So it's a little different than the inline kind of seasonal products. You're, you're looking at developing new platforms or helping transition a new zoom airbag into the inline team and find the right aesthetic and and functional elements combined together. Um, so it was, it was a great learning experience and that was, uh, that was our first meeting.
0: What year is this-ish when you and Dave first meet? Yeah,
2: 2002, 2003, yeah, yeah. somewhere in there.
0: <laughs> okay, yep. and how long had you each been at Nike at that point?
1: Well, I, Kevin, you'd already been there a few years. I started there the spring of 2000. Okay. Sorry, I had started in 1997, so I was th- there about three years.
0: 1997, as a kid who grew up in Chicago, I can't think of anything interesting happening in the world <laughs> of basketball at Nike around 97. Oh, oh wait, the Bulls dynasty, <laughs> right, right. It,
2: it was an, it was a crazy time, and working design was all on the fourth floor of the Michael Jordan building, and I mean, it was an extraordinary time, and I was extremely fortunate to kind of stumble into that and, uh, <laughs> you know, find a career. This many years later, uh, as a result, it's pretty remarkable.
0: This whole podcast m- could take a hard right <laughs> right <laughs> now, and we just it could, yeah. we just revisit yeah the uh, sort of ninety six to ninety eight years yeah wow I'm gonna sure. I'm gonna exercise a lot of self control right now actually um, <laughs> so let's then back up even further I mean this is already really interesting and. I'd love to hear each of you talk about your own backgrounds, maybe from growing up and education wise, you know, what you were studying, maybe what sports you were into, and then how the hell you both end up at Nike. So, Kevin, you want to go first there?
2: (laughs) Sure. Well, that's a lot to cover, and I'll try to keep it brief. I grew up in Minnesota, a suburb of Minneapolis, and and a public school kid, played all kinds of sports, football, baseball. Um, And then, you know, I went, I, I was into anything that burned gasoline. Basically I loved cars and planes and boats and jet skis and all of that stuff and wanted to get closer to that type of stuff. And I thought the way to do it was through engineering. Um, and I had reasonably good grades in school and got into a good engineering school and, went to Brown University and it shares a campus with the Rhode Island School of Design. So about halfway through engineering school, I, I took a class at RISD and kind of had my eyes open to a different world. Uh, for some reason, I I wasn't exposed or didn't really think design was a kind of career path or know about it until that point. And um, so I finished engineering school, still focused kind of on cars, did a formula SAE project while I was at Brown and, you know, was still very much in that zone did product design school at art center you know basically after brown got, got into art center in pasadena california so flew across the country and um re- retrenched there a Whole totally different cultural experience of course and also different school experience you know art center has no sports teams and has no dorms and it's a it's a nine to four job and it is as competitive as a job. And I loved every minute of it though. It was, it was difficult and stressful and wasn't particularly healthy for me at that point, but the, the drawing and learning to do all the stuff I wanted to do and it was amazing. So um, coming out of art center, I had, I had a roommate at art center, uh, Kevin Hoffer, who uh, is still at Nike and did internships while he was at art center and just couldn't say enough good things about Nike and, Doing footwear. And I saw the projects he was working on. I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Interesting. I didn't really realize there was that much in shoes and, and he planted the seed, I would say. And so when I graduated art center, he immediately went up to Portland and had a job waiting for him. And he said, Hey, there's openings, come on up and interview, you know, and, and I did, and it's hard not to be blown away when you see the campus at Nike and, and, uh, you know, uh, they were looking for someone for soccer and, uh, I hadn't played soccer, but I had the engineering background that I think I tried to play up that I have a little technical side in addition to the, the other things. And they took a chance on me and, and it was a you know, life changing experience you know, to, to kind of get thrown in. And, and soccer was just a wonderful experience for me because it really was a great mix of technical problems. Solving and things that you could lean into with a little engineering, but it still had to look great and be a, a commercial global product at the end of the day. So um, that that's a too long of an answer, but that's what got me into Nike. And then you know, there's a series of steps uh, through the career that landed us here, which we can get into later. But that's that's uh, covers it all.
0: You know, guys, before we hit the record button, I made a joke about how Kevin was the nerd and Dave was the cool one. Dave, I take it back. Kevin is the cool one. I know we haven't given you a chance to talk yet, but I'm pretty in on I'm pretty in on Kevin here, and I don't I don't
1: whatever you're about
0: to say, I don't think is going to be cooler than what Kevin just said. I'm
1: just being honest. So we'll, but we'll uh, see what I can do. Let's see what you got. Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, I grew up in San Diego. Um, that's already cooler but uh jazz kid does Minneapolis. But then uh yeah i was uh right. you know similar played three sports through through high school ran cross country basketball baseball ended up first going to wake forest kind of and partly because i think i was such a basketball fanatic um not to necessarily play there um but just uh it was a huge uh, basketball school at the time that was tim duncan years yeah. and uh If you're into basketball, uh, they were a top contender. Anyway, realized, uh, though, that um, I wanted to do design. I had always, you know, been a builder and an artist of sorts growing up. Kind of happened upon this school art center uh, in Pasadena, the same school (laughs) that uh, Kevin had gone to. And uh, so attended art center as well in Pasadena and focused on transportation design. You can see some overlapping stories here uh transportation design and uh and 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 was always interested in footwear i was a know kind of a a basketball shoe fanatic growing up you know uh and so when i graduated i was kind of split between transportation and footwear design um wasn't sure which direction i was going to go i should back up that halfway through my schooling what kind of got me more on the footwear design side was i did a a long internship with solomon um the ski company but also building a lot of trail running shoes at the time uh and so worked in boulder colorado for a while they had a satellite office there and really started to learn a lot about footwear so when i graduated quite a quite a bit of uh, footwear in my portfolio and went straight from um similar to kevin went straight from art center to nike um and went straight to nike basketball and so that's the basketball roots started coming because that's the group I really wanted to be in when I went to Nike and I was fortunate enough to be able to be in that group. So straight out of Art Center uh, to Portland, Oregon, to uh, well, to Beaverton, Oregon, to be specific, uh, to, to Nike. And, um, you know, that's where Kevin and I met and I was at Nike about three and a half years and then a series of other jobs. And we can talk about that, how Kevin and I kind of overlapped, you know, for the years ongoing after mm-hmm. that.
0: Huh? So one of the things I'm wondering about is you're like, and then I just got a job at Nike basketball and I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. you're either amazing or somehow there weren't a billion people trying to get jobs in Nike basketball. You know, you think about, I don't know, I'm thinking about something like the Iowa writers workshop or like these elite selective programs, right? That Mm -hmm. very, very few people end up getting admitted and Take your humility hats off for a second, but like, help me just understand, was it like, well, we happen to have some connections or like, yeah, we actually, you know, we got into f- coveted positions because mm-hmm. we don't suck. Like,
1: yeah, what? I, yeah, I think that's, that's uh, it's a, So it's like three, three things I would say. And Kevin can jump in here, too, is that it's a combination of things uh, back back then. It was um, one was I, I was very passionate about basketball uh so so that that was very apparent to Nike two, they recruited at Art Center, so they actually came down and recruited out of the school um where we had attended, so there was like one on one meetings being recruited out of that school it was a still is a very well known uh design school um and then three, I would say it actually i don't think what design was not as well known um as it is now uh 20, 20, 25 years ago, um, it was definitely more of an emerging um, thing going on. So, so that, that, you know, if you put all that together, you aggregate what I just said. I mean, it, it, there was kind of, um, yes, I think we put in the time and, and made it, you know, made our path. But at the same time, there was some things that lined up, I think a little bit better, maybe back in the day than today. What, what would you add to that, Kevin? Uh,
2: I would just add, yeah, that, they even then though they weren't hiring people who who weren't talented in in some way I would say yeah. you know I mean it was still fairly competitive, but I think dave's right that it's a completely different animal today, and they're a different very different company today. I think um, you know when you hire a lot of kids out of school, you're in an aggressive growth mode right because you get a certain energy and you have to be willing to kind of Put some time in and get those people up to being good designers i mean i know i can speak from my experience i would i didn't come in as a good designer for footwear you know it took it took some time you, you got to learn the ropes and you make some missteps and the company has to be in a position to to handle that you know so um and then i would say you know having a connection i, I certainly had one uh, good friend at a school and that uh, i think helps <laughs> probably still helps today so Something to vouch for you, you know <laughs> so you're both at Nike,
0: and you what? you start talking to each other. Kevin is in soccer, but then you both end up in basketball and
1: yeah, tell, yeah. push the so story Kevin, forward. yeah yeah, so Kevin came over from soccer into Nike basketball um, and he came in as as one of um, kind of our main at that time innovation was in the categories. And so he came over as one of our main innovation, um, actually, as our as the main innovation person at that time in our uh, category in basketball. I'd already been in basketball, I think, probably a year and a half, couple years at that point. I think, would you come in around 2002? Something like that. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so then, you know, we're kind of working, not necessarily together, but kind of together, you know, because he's, he's basically working on stuff that's farther out, that's then going to Filter into the inline side that we're going to then take and kind of mold into something that's going to hit hit um, you know the floor. So it um, it's kind of a linear a linear path in some ways from innovation into inline, right? It's a feeder system, and so he's working maybe a couple two to three years farther out um, with that information. So that's how. And then we also formed a friendship, um, you know, outside I would say of, of of work to some degree. So we we had that connection inside work but also outside of work as well
2: got it yeah and then and then i think we each kind of dave left sooner to go to another brand i stayed on at nike for a while so dave was at gbmi and you can talk about that experience but i i went (laughs) to puma and he was already there um so we we
1: linked up again
2: Um, yeah
1: so then and then so in puma we won't dwell on it too long but i was in boston and then Kevin joined, and, and he was in Germany because P- Puma's headquartered technically, in Germany. So um, we we then learned to work, you know, across an ocean really well, which is a, a skill in itself to be able to kind of work, you know, across different time zones and still have a connection. So it worked out pretty well in at Puma, and then from Puma um, we went to Under Armour, and that was kind of more of a, I guess, calculated move, you could say, because. Um, w- we knew that you know Kevin was going to go into innovation there, and I was going to go into inline. So then we knew we had that working relationship mm-hmm. again. And then so we spent a number of years at Under Armour, which we can get into as much as you want.
0: Did you sell <laughs> yourselves as like a package deal, Kevin? You tell the story. Not
2: really. No, I don't think <laughs> I wouldn't say we sold it. Not, actually, I think somebody else sold it as a package huh. deal. A, a good a good friend of ours who is consulting and and leading the design team. You have to remember. Uh, Under Armour was pretty small in footwear at this time. This was like 2009 or 10. We were talking about this, right?
1: 2009. Um, Nine.
2: We were recruiting. And so they were maybe, I don't know, 50, 60 million footwear, mostly cleats. And they were looking to grow. And it was a big chance. I mean, we were like, Ooh, Um, one, it's in Baltimore, which probably wasn't a place you'd pick off the map to live. But, too, it was just a, a chance you know how could we actually make it work you know and um i think that's where the confidence came a little bit knowing that we had this partnership and that we could you know count on each other really that you know whatever we developed in innovation would get handled properly and you know make it to the market because dave's team would be able to get it there and i think the confidence was vice versa that we could develop interesting stuff to support this brand and we had similar visions for how we would would do that so that was the first kind of calculated move and we just discovered it you know kind of by accident that this friend of ours had been talking to us about coming to help him he'd consulting at the at the time there and and he said to both of us separately you know you should come work here full time um, we figured it out pretty quickly and and in london i think we were walking down the street like uh, kind of running its course at Puma. There were huh. some funny leadership things going on and yeah, I'm looking, are you looking? Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm talking to this person. Yeah, me too. Oh, cool. So, I mean, it literally went like that as we were walking down the streets of London, and you know, it was, it was the moment that I think we, we knew we were going to do it. So
0: this is interesting. I mean, you've, name dropped, not in the pejorative sense of that, but like we're talking about obviously significant companies here. And part of me hearing you talk was curious, like why move? Like why leave Nike, you know, and say go to a Puma and then why leave Puma and go to Under Armour? You just mentioned, um, well, in one case, maybe there was some leadership things where you're like, ah, a change might be refreshing. Mm -hmm. But I guess if you wouldn't mind I'd be curious to hear each of you speak to this. Was it more about something was a little off in your present situation, or was the next thing, there just was always an opportunity, whether it was a massive financial opportunity or more of a that design opportunity to like, wait, maybe they're going to give us a bit more freedom here and there's an opportunity to go do something big. Can you talk to that a little bit?
1: I Yeah, I mean, I'll talk, I'll say you know, my opinion on it, and then Kevin can jump in too. I think the leadership thing is a big thing though that you know, we just Kevin kind of mentioned, but if there's it just in general, and I think this is maybe advice for anybody who wants to take it, is that if you don't believe in the leadership of the company that you're working for and the decisions that they're making, you might not want to be at that company anymore. And that that I've always held is a is really something to watch because that's where the company is going, the decisions are making and you're part of that, so that was definitely part of it. Um, in in certain circumstances, uh, not in the not in the early days, not in the Nike. That was a different different thing. But um, in the case of Under Armour, uh, I think both of us, and I'll speak for myself, saw a opportunity. Um, you had a business in footwear that, like Kevin said, was around seventy million, and a company though that had a lot of um, levers to pull and a lot of room to grow, and really. Um, was building what they were going to be within footwear and, you know, saw an opportunity to be part of that. And that doesn't, you know, it doesn't come along that, um, that often, if at all. (laughs) And so I think we both saw it um, from the innovation side and the inline side is like, Hey, this is a huge opportunity. This is something that doesn't come along and we can do it together. Um, And we know we have that experience, which is, um, another thing that you know you don't always have that relationship with somebody else to know what works. So that's that's really what happened with Under Armour, where it was kind of the right the right time and the and the right people involved. Yeah, I mean, I, I would echo that to, to
2: answer your question. I mean, I think I think a lot of that, you know, knowing when the right time to move is or why it really stems from kind of where you are within your career and and also where you're trying to go. So. You know, I didn't expect to be at Nike for almost ten years. You know, that was never in in the plan. And I stayed because it was really fun and I was learning a ton and there were really great people there. And, you know, when when some of those things changed and, you know, it got it got to be a big, bigger, much bigger company. And, you know, I learned so much. I felt like that was my you know, PhD in footwear, one of those 10 years at Nike. And, um, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily a perfect place to stay. There's a variety of forces at play, right? And, um, you know, I liked, what I learned that I liked was that aggressive offense. Like I got into the soccer team and they were, you know, as Nike and soccer in 97 was pretty small. They were number four or five brand. And so they were playing aggressive offense. And I kind of got plunked into this, you know, well-funded, raging machine and got to kind of get a front row seat for this growth and i I really liked it and i love the innovation thing in basketball too um and so you know when by you know 2006 nike was vying for number one in soccer and it's a very different thing at that point it's a big business and um you know i just i kind of reached the end of that path and and puma you know and i would say everybody comes to that conclusion right and all those headhunters and all those messages that you've gotten in the past and ignored because you love your job all of a sudden you're like well why don't i see what else is out there and in my case that was a thing that came from puma and it was like oh cool a chance to live and work overseas in europe and Um, it was kind of a bigger role within a brand that was focused on soccer, but still trying to grow. So it, it just aligned with a lot of things that were of interest to me inside and outside of work. And and so that's what led me there personally. And then Dave said the leadership thing was so critical and they're part of a holding company and, and it's just a very different, um, company and, and working within that was not my favorite. You know, I love the people. I love the lifestyle. I would have stayed there a lot longer, but, um, the, the, then that underarm opportunity came along and it was hard to hard to deny the opportunity. And then personally we'd had our, our son was born and we were, you know, looking to maybe get back in the US where he'd be close to the grandparents and my wife's family's in Pittsburgh, which is pretty close to Baltimore. So it actually, you know, suddenly became, you know, really a s- solid option. And and so we did it.
0: You know I kind of love the fact, and I also am aware of the fact, we've like barely said the word running yet. We're going to get there, people. Just, you know, bear with us. (laughs) Uh, But given, I mean, you guys are, it's not every day that we get to have a conversation like this with people that have had your experience. And let me ask you one bit of maybe a question out of left field. As you're talking, say, about Puma, this was a brand that at least for a while, and I actually don't know how much they are trying to do this currently. This was a brand that has maybe, say at times, tried to make a push into basketball. They haven't had maybe the kind of success at breaking into that space as I imagine they may have wanted. Can you speak to that? I mean, just given your collective experience about having worked in soccer, having seen Nike go from not on the podium, you know, to number one. I, I think let's just open this for a minute, if you're willing, to more of that macro conversation about why is it difficult for some brands
1: to push into a new market? Yeah. Well, I think if you step back and you said macro, so the, the entire brand, in order for something to be a success, the entire brand needs to culturally be about that sport. Really believe that. And where, where it doesn't work, it doesn't work and it's obvious so why did puma have let's say and i don't want to speak to puma present day because we're not there and uh but in order for anything to work within these brands they have to be about those sports 100 percent. and if they're just dabbling in it it ultimately will not work and they have to they have to live it basically and so that's why when you see um if you see a brand that tries to get into running let's say it's not obsessed with running as a culture and they don't live it every day and they don't have a bunch of runners running at lunch every day and it isn't going to work. They're, they're not, they're not, they're not a brand, same thing within trail running or outdoor or um, cycling or in anything really. Um, and basketball is the same thing. Uh, and, you know, if, if you don't, if you're not obsessing that and that's not one of your key focuses within your strategy and within the people that are working there, um, it's just ultimately not going to work. And, and that's, you know, we've seen that, uh, Kevin and I have seen that through the years that basically every brand that we've worked for, um, that you have to be really core to what you're doing. Um, and it's really important to us. Honestly, we haven't gotten to Speedland yet, but it's really important to us at Speedland and it's, and it's what we're about. And it's also why we're so focused on a singular uh, singular vision right now versus trying to go too broad too fast.
0: I promise we're yeah. going to get to Speedland. You know, let's not don't don't ru- <laughs> don't rush us here, Dave. Sorry, um,
1: sorry. I'm eager. I'm eager to talk about Speedland. <laughs> so, so,
0: you guys are at Under Armour, and now we're roughly. Sorry, what year are we talking about? 2010. 2010. Do you have specific shoe categories in 2010? Where okay, you guys are now both here. Welcome. Here's the category you both are working on, and then how did that evolve, or did that evolve or change? You know, over your time at Under Armour.
1: At that time, I came in as creative director of footwear, so every every any piece of footwear that was made. And Kevin came in as basically, uh, I don't know your exact title, but it was head of innovation for footwear. <laughs> okay,
0: so you're kind of the. <laughs>
1: We're kind of, we're kind of over anything that had anything to do with footwear. Yeah. That's what, that's how we entered Under Armour.
0: They didn't shove you off into one little corner and be like, just stay there and stare at that little corner of the wall. No. Okay. No,
1: actually quite the opposite. In the early days of Under Armour, it was, it was a really um, amazing place to work. I have to say, because um, we, we really had a lot of freedom to try. A lot of things um, that you normally, honestly, would not be able to do at a more established uh, footwear brand like a Puma or a Nike or an Adidas. So it was uh, really amazing place to be as a as a designer in those years. I would say, would you would you agree, Kevin? Oh, absolutely, hundred percent. You know, and it was
2: again that opportunity that we saw, hundred percent there. You know, and it I can liken it a bit to my early years in Nike football in the sense that like people were willing to take chances. They wanted they encouraged us to take chances. And there were people there who understood that was the only way Under Armour was gonna win was to do things differently. And and, you know, it was also really exciting just from a learning standpoint, you know, personally and and kind of coinciding with the professional was, you know, there were a ton of apparel experts there. And so the ability to learn about apparel manufacturing and textiles and down to yarns and threads and treatments and things that you know in footwear you don't get exposed to that level of detail and so to have these experts around you again um and and to be learning new things and then being able to apply it to footwear like oh that's interesting how would we do that because i think that was one of the things we saw as the opportunity how do you take an apparel brand and make it into a footwear brand it was a total opposite of all the big footwear brands they started in footwear and maybe they do some apparel now and so that was you know part of our Strategy and approach, so it was you know it was a really exciting place to be for for all those reasons.
0: Is it time to fast forward in the story to when maybe you two start having some casual conversations about doing something together?
1: Yeah, you want to start? Sure. <laughs> I think it's the
2: same thing, you know, as I mentioned before in terms of your your kind of choice or when you make uh, you're aware. Let's say that the end of the course has come at a certain place. And I think it was a similar thing in Under Armour. We had accomplished quite a bit, so much, and so many people had come through and left. And it was just time for us, I think, to to make some changes. And, and uh, you know, at the near end of that, it was definitely us talking to each other as friends and saying, hey what's next you know and bouncing ideas off i don't i don't think it was immediately to we do a brand i think it would kind of played off hey what about this company or what do you got what do you think about this one and it took a little bit but not that long to come to the conclusion that we didn't want to do another brand we had done three big brands we had you know been at the big Goliath and seen what that's like. And we've been at, you know, kind of that fun number three brand in Puma. And then we're at this, you know, underdog brand and on that steep part of the curve. I mean, it was hard to imagine learning or doing something different in another brand. And and that's, I think, what we're both about. And so those conversations led into, well, what would that be? And so Speedland was just a actually pretty quick conversation, I think, at its inception. Because we both love the outdoors, and it was pretty clear in our mind that there was an opportunity in, in the trail space, uh, both from a consumer and a product standpoint. So, um, you know, we said, hey, we got to apply all that we've learned over these last 20 plus years, all the connections that we have. It's kind of now or never.
0: So, this is an interesting move I think you've made because. We've talked about so far massive categories like soccer cleats and basketball shoes. And so like, well, currently the trail space, not quite as big as these other categories. And so I'd love to hear you speak to this. I mean, in part, if we've, you know, if we've been listening to the stories, we've heard you you know, part of what you've done is suss out opportunities and see where there's opportunities for growth. But that still seems like a bit of a, I don't know, scary proposition. Maybe stupid proposition. So, well, I'd love to hear one fair. of you speak to this a bit.
1: Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we both had experience on the. You know, we do talk a lot about basketball and soccer and all these other stuff. But we also we have experience, obviously, doing um, running as, as much or more experience doing running shoes as well. But The trail specifically, we saw, you know, white space there for that reason that there was a lot of growth still to be had. There were athletes doing amazing things um, on the on the ultra side specifically. And we thought that, you know, typically, if you look at brands, they put a lot of um, emphasis and funding and research into the R&D behind road running. But they weren't putting it behind trail running and thought, wow. Why not put our efforts there where it's not being done um, by the bigger brands and see see what we can accomplish? So that really um, that's really one of the reasons. Besides the athletes doing amazing things, is the big brands weren't putting the same attention. At least we didn't see that uh, that they were on the road running side. And it's a different thing. It's not the same thing. They're not. You can't plug and play road running to trail running. They're 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 quite different um, as far as design goes. So we we saw an opportunity there to, to approach that. And I would add,
2: you know, from a business standpoint, we we had worked at big companies, and those categories are large. But, you know, we don't want to be Nike or Under Armour or Puma. You know, we want this brand to be a sustainable business, and we want to, you know, make it profitable so we can earn a living and hopefully have a nice small company. But... We're we're doing this and we're doing it in a in the way that we're doing it because we want to be able to make decisions that are right for the company. That if we were, um, you know, listening to a crowd of people, we you know they might not make the same decisions. You know, so I think I think we we look at it from just a size standpoint of like that it's a big enough market for us and the small company that we want to build in this special kind of product to to make a good company, even though to a nike or uh, adidas you know it's it's not a big category You're absolutely right so we think that's our advantage actually
0: okay well you just said that you can't just kind of take what one may have learned working on running shoes and just sort of carry all of that over into you know the tech and design elements of trail shoes so i'd love to kind of hear you get into the weeds about that well we
2: I think, hinted at it earlier, if if they didn't say it outright, we, we really broke the shoe down into the functional elements that we heard from athletes, you know, and took each of those as discrete problems. So fit, super important to a trail athlete, and we are strong believers that better fit is better performance. It's just less wasted energy and, you know, obviously blisters and so on are just unacceptable, you know. So fit, super important. traction another one like you're ripping through the forest you got to have good traction so we know we got that and you know we kind of went down all these things cushioning protection um, and propulsion and kind of said how, how do we look at each one of these and apply everything we know and have learned and, and find the best suppliers and you know, we couldn't turn it into an innovation project. We wanted to build a brand and make products. So they also had to be commercially viable solutions and, and people that we knew or had connections to, right? So, and, and um, our experiences brought all the best to us. So we connected with a lot of, you know, sources that we had from the past and, um, you know, applied where we could. So, you know, we kind of landed on BOA because functionally, they offer the best solution for this athlete, being able to incrementally tighten and loosen on the fly and in zones, um, which is important for the ultra athletes. You know, their feet swell, different conditions, different terrain, steep uphill. You're going to lace differently than a steep downhill. And so being able to do that on the fly, we, we know from, from feedback, is, uh, you know, been a breakthrough. And that's certainly a big part of what makes the fit on our product good. And, you know, partnering with Michelin for the outsole, Another big one, because they're a global rubber supplier. They're deep experts in that. And we have a selection of compounds we can choose from that really helps us optimize these products based on the terrain and what we're doing. Dave? You want to jump in, Dave? Yeah,
1: just um, real quick. I think you just brought up Boa and Michelin. And I think one thing that's important to note, too, that maybe we do um, consciously to some degree is we we are... um, runners and and um we are always looking at the running space but we're also looking at other spaces um whether that's schema or or um cycling or whatever it is and 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 i think hearing kevin say that is like in the case of boa the the reason we we knew the product so well is because we'd used it as as cyclists in the past and so Mm -hmm. sometimes the best solutions are looking at adjacent um sports and bringing that technology into running and so uh, Boa was an example of that. And then um, Michelin as well. Um, we have a cuttable blocks technology within Michelin uh, and that came directly from downhill uh, race mountain bike racing, uh, where they were cutting the, the tires for certain courses. And so we thought, Hey, why not bring that technology to footwear? Um, again, it's, it's, Something simple, but it's something where you need to be looking at another industry to build that relationship and bring it in. So just I uh, wanted to offer that in there.
0: Can we stay on that for a second, Dave? You said what did you say? I, I just want to slow this down for people who maybe have are just smarter than me or have had more coffee than me today, but
1: cuttable blocks cuttable blocks, yeah, so there was this cuttable blocks technology on their downhill mountain bike racing uh, tires. And they were literally doing it for specific courses. And we thought, wow, that's interesting. Why can't you bring that and cut them for specific trails? I mean, in a very pure sense, not that you necessarily would, but, and so with our technology, um, you can cut the blocks or we say trim, trim the blocks from six millimeters in depth to three millimeters. So in a really basic sense, if you're If you have this, uh, the SLPDX and you're in Southern California, and that's where 95% of your runs are going to happen, you might permanently trim those blocks to three millimeters because you're running on dry. You know, you don't need that mud, uh, that penetration. But if you're in Portland, where it's traditionally going to be a little bit wet, um, you're probably going to leave them, obviously, at six and and go with that. So it is a one-way operation. But what's interesting is it allows us as well to customize for our athletes, so we've had athletes who, where we've customized the blocks for, you know, a run on the salt flats, and then turned around and left them long for, you know, a run on a much treacherous, uh, you know, course. So it it offers some uh, a level of customizability that doesn't exist in the industry right now, and it came from mountain bike tires um, directly. So I think often we're, we're always looking at different, different sports, um, which we also happen to be into personally and, and build those kind of connections. So it's just an interesting thing is if you have any designers listening that we're, we're often looking at other things, whether it's Kevin brought it up earlier, um, you know, planes and cars and, and all these other things, but we're looking for relationships and, and honestly, better ways to do things. Um, so.
0: Let's talk more then about this SLPDX, right? This is the first Speedland shoe out. And I think you've already touched on some elements of it, but I should ask, when did Speedland like officially launch as a thing in the world?
2: (laughs) It was June last year, June, 2021.
0: June, 2021.
2: We put up the the website on, I think early in the month and uh, we were accepting pre-orders at that point. And, um, I think by the end of July, we were, or early August, we were fulfilling. Yeah. Early August. So, so it's, um, yeah, it was supposed to be, uh, <laughs> weird. Yeah, there so were delays we, uh, in this day and age, a few little
1: shipping glitches,
2: but yeah, we, imagine, we it right. imagine that we, yeah, we, we're not going to make excuses. I think it's kind of, everybody's heard it and nobody wants to hear any more about it, but, um, you know, the, yeah, so we really haven't been in business all that long, um, we're still learning stuff every day, and, and um, but it's it's been an amazing, you know, last six or eight months for sure. You know, we've been to several races and, you know, we've seen our athletes multiple times in different environments. And, um, you know, again, it's, it's one of those things that's a really special part of the, the job to be able to connect with that community like that
0: so let's talk a bit about this first shoe you said at the very top of this conversation that you're like we we're here to make no compromises so you got to start somewhere and make something so what were those conversations like in terms of I don't know if this would be the time to use the word design brief but like what were you going for Kevin
2: yeah we well it's funny because we had done after we left underarm we had a year off and we had done this YouTube show called speed hack where we just for fun took shoes and hacked them around tried to make them faster lighter whatever but we were really hands-on at that point and we were enjoying it having fun and we went kind of from that into let's start thinking about this brand and start getting ideas together um and so we we went right into 3d honestly so again we had the functional elements we were trying to solve we knew the materials and, and, you know, the families we were going to kind of go for in different areas. So we literally took Michelin mountain bike tires and we were cutting them up and Hey, what kind of width do we want here? And we had this idea, you know, p foam, for instance, people love it, right? We know it from the roadside, not necessarily appropriate for the trail. It's so soft and it's fragile. It doesn't have great bond strength. And so we thought, well, what if we could have a sort of modern cupsole with this outsole instead and put the midsole inside? Now we get more stability around the edges from the rubber um, and we protect the P-back so it can last longer. The thing we didn't want to do is make the shoe super heavy. So again, Michelin had this super thin sidewall and that allowed us to get a different look. I mean, that aesthetic was driven by function, but it gave it a really unique look and allowed us to stitch the outsole to the upper. And for us, that was really just this message of this is durable, you know. This outsole can never—it's never, never going to come off. No delamination, right? So the aesthetic is telling you a certain function, and you know that's mission. The boa—they landed where they were out of function, right? We did like we designed them in a place we started, but they moved uh, with help from boa and from our athletes, and you know where they landed is um, you know different than where they started, and you know again the aesthetic of the straps and everything else is really all functionally driven. So I would say our design was, you know, integrating the components and thinking more about assembly and and so on than it was stylizing. Dave, I don't know if you'd characterize it differently.
1: No, it was built it was a totally equipment built from function first and we let so let that drive the aesthetic, which is the best the best way to work.
0: When we're thinking about that product brief Did you guys have very specific weights that you're like, this shoe has to be lighter than X? We end up talking a lot about weight on blister, especially maybe when it comes to ski products, the weight of skis, the weight of ski boots. And we have our opinions on that that, well, I argue hard for about going too light on some of these products can actually really take away from the performance and feel of these products we've actually had much fewer conversations on running shoes and trail shoes so from talking to designers were you like well there were other more important elements that we were going for in this shoe and weight was maybe you know, something we were paying attention to, but it was not in like our top one or two. How were you thinking about weight in particular on this first shoe of yours?
1: Well, I would say that, like Kevin said, we we looked at each element of performance. And so that's what we tried to optimize first. And then the weight, you know, was a result of that. And I think weight was definitely important. Weight is important in running shoes. So it's definitely something that people are paying attention to. But, you know, what I always come back to is it's not really about necessarily lightweight, it's about the right weight. And um, I think you have to look at the race as you want the shoe to be light and you don't want it to feel heavy, but you also need it to have enough support when you're descending or ascending really fast. You need to be, have the right weight for that. And, um, you know, if you have something that's too light, that's not giving you the support you need, well, then you're going to not have the fit you need and you're going to lose time and energy on that as well. So weight's an, an important part, but it's not the end all be all. It's it's part of the part of the equation and we were always paying attention to it, but we weren't going to sacrifice something else that could be equally as important um, because you know it's the, it's it really is about the right weight, not just lightweight. Speaking of weight, this
0: SLPDX doesn't only have one boa dial on it. It's got two. Now, seems to me, if we really cared first and foremost about weight, you're not going to put two boa dials on a shoe. Be a
1: perfect example. Yes. Boa dials aren't necessarily heavy, but they uh, they are um, obviously going to weigh a little bit more than if you didn't have one on there at all. And that's a perfect example that we get much better fit by having that second boa dial where we can really regionally zone in on the fit. And For us, that's going to give you a better performance over the course of a race than if you just had one. So it's kind of you have to measure which is more important, the weight versus that. And we think the fit uh, definitely uh, is more important than the weight in this case. Would you add anything to that, Kev? I would go back to the athletes and say
2: the consistent feedback we've had and we've offered them alternatives and built alternatives and every time they want the dual boa so and it's it's been pretty consistent and i i think that kind of you know says it all because when they're out there for 13 20 24 hours at a time you know they they know a lot more about that shoe than than we do and so when they tell us that that's the case then you know that's the answer as far as we're concerned. Hmm.
0: Yeah, cuz i mean i imagine at least maybe there were some prototypes where there was a single boa dial and you know i've run in shoes with a single dial i've never run in a shoe with two. Um so it's interesting to hear you say that effectively or maybe universally the athletes liked the dual boa.
2: They've never had it before. They've never had the ability to like tighten the forefoot down and leave the top loose. Or vice versa leave the forefoot super loose and crank down the shoe and you know we see athletes do it completely opposite from each other but they both love it in other words you know when you have a lace you're either tight all the way down and we've seen people get bruising and injuries from that top lace being so tight and You know, that might be an effort to get the forefoot tight, but the way that, you know, a typical eye eye stay is constructed, you can't do the zonal thing. And so we think it's significant. And I think we're also using the highest end BOA dial, which is another differentiator that, you know, a lot of people don't know BOA at all. And then if they do, they might know it from a certain level. And this one that we're using is the one that you would know from the S Works cycling shoe, but that's about it. So it, turns forward to tighten, and you can turn it backwards to loosen. So you're not just popping it and then having to reset every time, which again, on the fly changes are just that much simpler. Um, So it's it's an elevated experience of BOA, even if you're familiar.
0: I don't think we've talked about price yet. We should probably do that. (laughs) That's right. The SLPDX, I believe, retails for $375. Correct. Now, For those listening who are like, oh, hell no. Or maybe they think, I don't see how you got there. Now, we've talked quite a bit about some of the things already, and you know, putting a couple boas on a shoe is not an inexpensive proposition, but just talk a little bit about
1: the price. It, I mean, the price is really simple. It's an aggregation of all the things that are within the product. And once you aggregate all those things together, you get to the price of what it what it costs to build it. And some things we haven't touched on that are significant are the Carbatex carbon plate that's in there that has flex in one direction and it's stiff in the other, you know, that's an expensive component, but it, it offers an advantage in the, in the trail world that, you know, wasn't out there. So carbotex plate, the PVAX, uh, we're using a special supercritical critical P-backs, you know, and these are things where we can really get into the weeds, but it's really what's happening is we're using these best of the best things. In some cases, things that have never been done and we're aggregating all those together and that's why it costs what it costs. We're really, you know, we're using Dyneema for the the moccasin stitching that goes around. We're using Dyneema in our knit, um, which is you know a very expensive uh, textile. So you know you just com- start to combine those things, and if you really know footwear and you really know everything that we're using, um, you you actually do understand and um, and it makes a lot of sense. But yeah, from the outside, if if you if you don't aren't familiar with everything that we're trying to do, it, it can seem a bit bit extreme. I think maybe on initial read, but, uh, but that is the reason. And, and, and there's really no way around. And it's the reason why other big brands aren't using, uh, everything that we are using for that exact reason. (laughs) Yep.
0: I, I find it sometimes funny. Um, I mean, we just review products and we say what stuff does and that's our job, but it is kind of funny to me, the, price question like some people just get real mad if they're like that's Mm -hmm. stupid that's too much that's too much money and i'm like i don't know things can cost what they cost companies are allowed to sell products for whatever the hell they want to sell those products for if that doesn't seem to be the right product for you don't worry about it you know and yet that said i do think when we're talking about high price point products Probably a good idea for a company to be able to say, listen, here are the reasons why we're getting to this price, right? And, um, you know, and
1: and ultimately, I should have, I think we deliver a different experience. It's not to say that you can't go buy a $120 trail running shoe and get a great trail running experience. What we're delivering is a different uh, elevated trail running experience. And that's also why we talk more in the terms of equipment versus a shoe because we really took a more of an equipment approach and we do deliver a different experience having that p directly against your foot nobody else is offering that it's a totally different thing and when you when consistently when our elites and more i guess i could say recreational trail runners both when they're in that they experience that and they they sense the different fit sensation they sense the different cushioning They like that you can remove nobody's ever done a removable carbon plate. They like that you can remove the plate and have two different running experiences. So there's just a lot of things that haven't been done. And if, if you appreciate that, great. If you don't, that's okay too. There's another maybe product for you. It it, it doesn't have to be our product, but we, there is a reason why it, it is what it is and why it costs what it costs. And, and we're, you know, We're very open and transparent about
0: it. I'd love to ask you actually about the removable carbon plate. Like, I was like, okay, that's interesting. I mean, and I was trying to think before our conversation, are certain people going to be like, I just simply prefer always running in this shoe without the plate? Or are people really sort of using it for certain runs, taking it out for others? What kind of feedback have you received along those lines.
2: That's a great question and it's been really fascinating for us to get those answers as well because you design it, you know, with one thing in mind and sometimes things follow that path and other times they don't. And I think what we've we've seen is that people a certain subset of the consumers are are playing with the plate and taking it in and out. I think probably most, you know, try it maybe one way or the other and then they just leave it. And I think generally people are leaving the plate in. But we do find a group that like taking it out and for various reasons. I think we've heard some athletes say on super technical scrambly stuff, they prefer to take the plate out because they get a little bit more, Hmm, more feel feel. and better kind of conformability around, around rocks. And then we've heard some athletes say that they like taking out the, uh, the plate for like an easy, you know, five miler with a dog or something like that. Um, So a variety of things. And, You know, I think whether you take it in or out or not, again, it's part of what we hope to do in the future. And right now we're learning from our athletes by customizing for them. So based on a given race, um, if we need a a stiffer option, we can give that to them. If, you know, if they want something softer, you know, we we develop that for them. and, And we're learning about what our offering could be to cover kind of the full range and give people different experiences based on just the plate alone.
0: There's another component I want to ask about, and that is the recyclability of the SLPDX. Would love to hear one of you speak to what's going on here.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think it's important that we designed the SLPDX with end, end in mind right, from, you know, right at the beginning. So we use very small amounts of glue. Um, we actually didn't want to use any glue for honest, but we ended, ended up using a very a small amount. But the idea is that it's very easy in the sense that you can cut that stitch and you can distance because there's very little amounts of glue. You can disassemble all the parts and you can sort them accordingly, uh, where they need to go from a recycled, a recyclability. So that's important because uh, if you look at how pretty much all shoes for the most part, m- in the trail space are constructed, they're glued, they're with, you know, built with layers of glue and you cannot disassemble those um, easily. And all those parts cannot be uh, recycled together, right? Rubber is different than, than foam, uh, EVA, and obviously different than textiles, which is even different than plastics. So you need to be able to separate those parts accordingly. Our, the SLPDX is built for that uh, right from the start. So not only does it allow us to customize the product when we're talking about performance features, but it allows us to disassemble it at end of life uh, fairly easily.
0: Kevin, how simple or hard was that from the engineering (laughs) point of view?
2: Well, like Dave said, you know, it was, we didn't get all the way there uh, to where we wanted to be. And I think it's, you know, we're, we're kind of taking that stance where we, sustainability is important to us you know and keeping this product as you know conscious as we can but we want to be honest too we don't want to fall into this kind of fake greenwashing thing and cl- making claims that we we can't back up right so we think of it as a platform and the platform is built in a way that we're open. As soon as we could replace that p with something that was, you know, more eco-friendly, it's a drop-in. It's a pretty simple change for us to make. And likewise with, you know, all those components, I think working with our major suppliers is another reason that we like the breakdown approach because, you know, Michelin's a bigger company and I know Boa's working on their solutions. And when we have good solutions in place, then we can, you know, we're easily able to plug in with those uh, with those guys as well. So I think it's, you know, keeping, keeping it really open but in terms of the execution of the platform you know it was a little bit of trickiness but it wasn't you know again we we didn't want to swing too far with crazy solutions so we were trying to work within things we knew uh, or kind of new and uh you know trapping that lower midsole in without using any glue didn't turn out to work exactly as, as we had hoped we had a little too much shear and issues. So we did have to use some glue. That's the example, but the platform is there. If we can eliminate that problem in another way um, we will, we just you know, got to take our time. And, and I think because we're keeping kind of performance top of mind, we're keeping that sustainability right behind it. We're going to keep on testing and we'll keep on making sure that we, we can find those right solutions both on the sustainability and the performance side.
0: I think this is a really cool development, um, certainly in the broader outdoor industry when it comes to products and hopefully beyond the outdoor industry. But I think in a number of product categories, there's a number of companies making some pretty good products. Like We've figured some things out from a design point of view um, certainly, if we're thinking about say skis in particular, there's a number of good options out there. I think more than there used to be, and there's we see fewer skis come through where we're just like this is an abomination. Like you just completely whiffed, right? Um, and I I think that if this is fair to generalize, whether we're talking about skis or ski boots or or mountain bikes or running shoes, I think a cool thing that is as companies really say, like where they might be getting with respect to the performance of certain products, I think things are going to get a lot more competitive on that sustainability element. And consumers will be like, well, I could maybe select from these three or four or five particular products, but this company seems to really be doing legitimate, not greenwashing, but legitimate work when it comes to the sustainability or recyclability or the fixability right of some of these products. And, and I think it's going to be cool and I really hope that we see companies rewarded for that.
2: Yeah. Right. I, I also like the cooperation we're seeing, you know, we're seeing some interesting brands getting together. I mean, I wouldn't have expected Adidas and Allbirds, for instance, you know, to do something around that. And, you know, um, it, so I, I think it's going to be good for for the consumer and for for everyone, really, to have a selection of high performance materials that are more eco friendly. I mean, every everybody wants it, so um, we're happy to you know be in that mix and and partner with people and including our existing partners and others to do the right thing on on all of that.
0: Dave, did you want to add to that?
1: No, I just I would just add that. Uh, I agree with everything you were saying. And the the only part I would add that as far as speed land goes, and maybe we've already said it, that we're as we always have sustainability in mind, but we will, we will never compromise performance. And I think that's a key, key thing for us as a brand is that we are about hyper performance and uh, we are always going to try and do the right things as far as sustainability goes. And as far as um, our give back goes as well, which we can touch on a minute if we want, but the, key is we will not compromise performance because that is what we put first.
0: Nice to have clarity from brands. Like, you know, <laughs> like here's our one, here's our two
1: and that's the way it is. Right.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, talk about the give back program.
1: Yeah. I think, I think we're pretty unique in that sense that um, I think we've mentioned it in the in, along the way here, but we put our athletes at the center of everything we do from testing to relationships. And so when we do our give back, it's a bit more, I guess, grassroots and that, we'll take 10 percent of our profits and we distribute it directly back to our athletes um, within their community and then our athletes pick what foundations um, they want to support so if they're in you know don um one of our athletes ultra runner lives in fair play so he can get back to a foundation within that area um of the of the world and same thing you know uh, dylan bowman can give back within, um, the Portland area where, where he's living or Liz Canty, um, where she's living. So, so the, the idea is more like the, the give back is directly back to our athletes. And then that directly hits wherever they live. So it's kind of a, a a local give back in a sense, but it's also very endemic because it goes back to trail related, outdoor related, um, endeavors. So it's, it's, it's kind of a whole cyclical, Nature that we work with them to test the product. We also give our give back through them. So everything um, is revolving around our athletes at Speedland.
0: I understand you have a new model coming out in the hopefully not too distant future. Can that's we true. speak to this a little bit?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, our next commission um, would be the the SLHSV. And so that goes back to our commission idea where that's centered around Liz Canty and uh, Huntsville. Uh, Alabama, where she's, uh, you know, cut her teeth on, on a lot of races and won a lot of races in that region of the country. And so what we do is we take the product and we put the necessary um, changes in order to optimize it for that region. So um, in this, this case, there's going to be some compound changes on the bottom for wet limestoney type technical rock. And um, the boa dials are uh, anodized aluminum. So uh, even increased durability from from where they are now. Um, and then also it's gator compatible. Uh, Liz Candy wears a lot of gators in her races. So, uh, it's, it's integrated gator system, uh, is, is pretty cool how you can attach it. And so, um, and then it has a lot of her details as well. So that's kind of how we see a a commission, but that's also the HSV and that'll, that'll come in the kind of April time period. Gotcha. Yeah. Did,
0: Did he do good, Kevin? (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Did I, did I miss anything there? And then we have no? some pretty, um, no, some pretty... I... go ahead, Kevin.
2: Well, I was wondering if you were going to talk about something else.
1: Yeah, that's right. Or you can talk about it, but I'll, 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 lead into it and Kevin can, and then we have a pretty exciting product coming after that. That'll come more towards the fall. That's more in the maximal category. So it'll share some similar DNA to where we are right now, but ima- uh, imagine a more maximal approach. Um, Where we think we can uh, get after some things in a new way as well. Interesting.
0: (laughs) We've talked around this a bit, but I'd love to hear maybe just a cleaner articulation uh, or answer to this question. Like today, who would you say Speedland shoes and the Speedland brand maybe is for? Who ought to be considering? the SLPDX and maybe the HSV and perhaps the new shoe coming down the pike in the fall. You
1: want to answer that Kevin? Well, yeah, (laughs) I'll answer that. I mean,
2: I think it's any athlete who's, you know, main probably running is, is on, is a trail runner at heart and somebody who's, you know, to whom trail running is important enough that they want to spend a little bit more on equipment. Uh, for their feet rather than sort of commodity type products, you know, I think we we're aware that at our price point We're going to appeal to that high-end athlete who's, you know Spending a lot of time in the trail and who believes that better equipment can make their experience better in the mountains And so we hope to appeal to that. We hope to appeal to people who love gear, you know, we call them the prosumer People who might not be the fastest, but they love gear and they like to feel like they're keeping up with latest technology. Kind of put myself in that category. Um, and so, you know, those those are the probably the two primary groups, the elites who believe they can go faster with better equipment and the prosumer who wants to experience something completely new and trail.
0: And then in terms of the future of Speedland, I mean, given some of the things you've said, namely our clear number one priority is hyper-performance, have you two, I'm guessing the answer is yes, but have you two discussed, perhaps down the line, bringing price points down on some things? Or do you feel like there's already a kind of fundamental philosophical commitment to, no, like haven't you been listening? It's about (laughs) hyper-performance and the things we design will sort of always be sort of, at the front lines of innovations and materials and the rest. And so I we can't really imagine a world where we start to see price points come down a whole lot because, again, haven't you been listening?
1: Where are we here? I, I think the answer is twofold on that one. Yes, we will bring down prices if we can bring down prices. But we also will always be at the front lines of innovation. So it's kind of one of those things where If we see opportunities and we can make smart decision and not compromise the performance um, and bring the build costs down a little bit we will definitely do it you know it's not our goal to keep prices high for the sake of keeping prices high like that's actually quite the opposite but um, we also want to be always playing in that innovation space and playing in that space of trying to optimize performance so Um, we will look towards that, but yeah, I wouldn't, we're not just going to bring prices down to bring them down either. Like there's, that's not what this brand is about. This brand is about creating the best of the best.
2: Yeah. I think the, the analogy we like to use on the, on the business side, it's another automotive one, but you know, we, we would want to be more like Ferrari than Ford in the sense of very special products, not that many of them. Um, and we'll come down, you know, to a certain level, but not kind of compromising or watering down what the brand stands for, this hyper-performance notion. So, you know, we, um, we recognize that that means inherently, you know, you're not as, as big and we're okay with that, but the positioning of the brand and, and stuff, we just we can't compromise that no matter what we do.
0: For people interested in checking out Speedland products and purchasing speedland products where should they go
1: they should go to runspeedland.com that's our site um you can check out everything on there from our story to the all the tech we have videos that go into everything we have user manuals i mean you can go as deep as pretty much you want to (laughs) go learning about speedland at runspeedland.com uh you can also check us out on uh on instagram Uh, we put up stuff you know most days there um, mostly athlete centric, but, um, but again, check us out on Instagram. I would say those are the two main places, right? Yeah.
0: Sounds good. Well, guys, this has been really fun. It's, uh, really cool learning more about both of your backgrounds. And I'm always fascinated in how on earth somebody, you know, starts a brand today and why and and how clearly defined are some of their principles and the rest. And so this is all very interesting. And uh, I kind of think given your track records, honestly, when I first started hearing about Speedland, I was like, yeah, I don't know. Um, but hearing about where you've been and what you've done so far, I guess I'd be surprised if there's that many listeners out there thinking I'm totally willing to bet against these two. I I, I don't I don't seem like <laughs> doesn't seem like that's a very safe bet. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how this all unfolds. We definitely. definitely. <laughs> well, thanks a lot but for the, I
2: wouldn't bet against us either. <laughs> yeah.
0: no, 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 no. Uh, thanks a lot for the time. Um we'll stay tuned um I'd love to get some of our reviewers in in some Speedland shoes and and you know and we'll weigh in and see what we think. But uh, mostly, I just want to say best of luck with everything you're doing, and I do really appreciate the the clarity and the intention behind what you're building. And uh, I think brands are very well served to have that kind of clarity these days. I, I don't think it tends to work out that well when they're missing that piece. So um, yeah, appreciate you sharing all of the story Great. with us and, and good luck going forward. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: Well, that's it for this edition of off the couch. I want to say thanks to Dave and Kevin for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, Colorado, Please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again next week.